Section 30 of A History of the Inquisition of Spain, Volume 3. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Robert Sherman, Jr. A History of the Inquisition of Spain, Volume 3, by Henry Charles Lee. Book 8, Spheres of Action, Chapter 1, Jews, Part 2. We have seen, see Volume 1, pages 137 and 140, the reception by Zhao II of the multitudes who flocked to Portugal at the time of the expulsion, and their kindly treatment by King Manuel at his accession in 1495. In contracting marriage, however, with Isabella, daughter of Ferdinand and Isabella, the condition was imposed on him of expelling all refugees who had been condemned by the Spanish Inquisition, and, under this impulsion, seconded by his confessor the Frade Jorge Vogado, he issued a general edict of expulsion, excepting children under fourteen who were torn from their parents a measure which caused the most deplorable distress, many of the Jews slaying their offspring rather than surrender them to be brought up as Christians. By various devices, the departure of the exiled was delayed, until after the time when they incurred the alternative of slavery, and thus they were coerced to accept baptism. To temper this, Manuel granted, May 30, 1497, that for twenty years they should be exempt from persecution that subsequently all accusations of Judaism should be brought within twenty days of the acts charged, that the trial should be conducted under ordinary secular procedure, and that confiscations should inure to the heirs. Moreover, he promised never to legislate for them as a distinct race. This latter pledge was soon broken by edicts of April 21st and 22nd, 1499, forbidding them to leave the kingdom without royal permission and prohibiting the purchase from them of lands or bills of exchange. Popular aversion increased and culminated in the awful Lisbon massacre of 1506. This wrought a revulsion of feeling. In 1507, the restrictive laws of 1499 were repealed. The new Christians were allowed freely to trade and to come and go. They were in all things assimilated to the natives, and were entitled to the common law of the land. In 1512, the twenty years' exemption was extended to 1534, and although, in 1515, Dom Manuel applied to Leo X for the introduction of the Inquisition, on the request being delayed, the matter was dropped and was not revived. Until Manuel's death, in 1521, the new Christians thus enjoyed toleration and flourished accordingly. They grew rich and prosperous, they intermarried with the noble houses, and they largely entered the church. Externally, their religious observance was unimpeachable, and Portugal naturally became a haven of refuge for Spanish conversos, nor is it likely that the restrictions on such immigration, enacted in 1503, were rigidly observed. His successor, Dom João III, a youth of twenty, was a fanatic of narrow mind and limited intelligence. But the influence of Manuel's counselors, who continued in the direction of affairs, procured, between 1522 and 1524, the confirmation of the privileges granted by the late king. Ecclesiastical pressure and popular prejudice, however, made themselves felt and, in 1524, a secret inquest brought the testimony of parish priests that the new Christians were suspected of being Christians only in name. Then, Joao's marriage in 1525, with Catalina, sister of Charles V, the only Portuguese queen admitted to a seat in the Council of State, 
brought a powerful influence to bear. The growing strength of these tendencies gradually overcame considerations of plighted faith, and, early in 1531, Dr. Braz Nato, the ambassador at Rome, was instructed to procure secretly from Clement VII briefs establishing in Portugal an inquisition on the Spanish model. We have seen in Spain the objections of the Holy See to the royal control of the institution and to the abandonment of all share in the confiscations, and these probably explain the delays which postponed until December 17th the issue of a brief conferring on the royal nominee, Frade Diago de Silva, the requisite faculties as Inquisitor General. This was followed January 13th, 1532, by one ordering him to assume the office. The two reached Lisbon in February, but it seems to have been feared that their publication would lead to an immediate exodus of the new Christians, and they were kept secret until laws could be framed, reviving, with additional rigor, the edicts of 1499, prohibiting, for three years, departure from the kingdom, the sale of real estate, and the negotiation of bills of exchange. These were issued June 14th after which there was a pause, explicable only by the lavish employment of money in both Lisbon and Rome. The new Christians evidently had obtained knowledge of the threatened measure. Much of the active capital of the kingdom was in their hands, and the danger called for energetic work and sacrifice. A fitting emissary to Rome was found in Duarte de Paz, a converso of no ordinary ability, energy, and audacity. The king was entrusting him with a mission beyond the borders, under cover of which he made his way to the papal court, where for ten years he continued to act as agent for his fellows. Then, in September, there came Marco della Rovere, bishop of Sinagoglia, sent as nuncio on this special business, who was speedily bought by the new Christians, and they probably won over by the same means the Frade Diago de Silva, who complicated matters irretrievably by refusing to accept the office of inquisitor-general. Duarte de Paz also was not idle, and the confusion became inextricable when, by a brief of October 17th, Clement VII suspended temporarily the one of the previous December, and prohibited not only de Silva, but all bishops, from proceeding inquisitorially against the new Christians. As we have seen in Spain, the Curia recognized that here was a numerous and wealthy class of heretics, to whom it could sell protection and then abandon them until their fears or their sufferings should produce a new harvest. This speculation in human agony was all the more undisguised and lucrative that Portugal was a comparatively feeble kingdom, which could be treated with much less ceremony than Spain, and Joao III, a man of wholly different type from Ferdinand or Charles V, while his invincible determination to have an inquisition in his realm prolonged the struggle and rendered especially productive the game of inclining to either side by turns. This was so self-evident that Joao almost openly reproached Clement VII with it, and the Committee of Cardinals entrusted with the conduct of the affair rejoined that inquisitors were ministers of Satan and inquisitorial procedure a denial of justice. Joao's reproaches were justified when Clement, by a brief of April 7, 1533, granted what was virtually a pardon for all past offenses, without disability to hold office in church or state, while those defamed for heresy could justify themselves before the nuncio, a function which he turned to account for when recalled in 1536 he was said to have carried with him to Rome some 30,000 crowns. Joao threw obstacles in the way of the execution of this brief, which called forth from Clement, in July and October, strenuous orders for its enforcement, followed by another of December 18th suspending it. 
It became the subject of active negotiation, and Carl Pucci or Santiquatro, the protector of Portugal, suggested that it might be modified and, in the guise of fines, some twenty or thirty thousand ducats be extorted from the new Christians to be divided with the Pope. In transmitting this proposal, Henrique de Manessis, the Portuguese ambassador, added that nothing could be done in the Curia without money, for this was all they wanted, and that Clement was dissatisfied with Zhao because he had received nothing from him. Clement, however, who was rapidly approaching his end, on July 26th, ordered the nuncio to overcome by excommunication all opposition to the pardon and forbade all prosecution for past heresies, moved to this, as Santiquatro told Paul III, by his confessor, who insisted that, as he had received the money of the new Christians, he was bound to protect them. Clement died September 25, 1534, and the struggle was renewed under Paul III, who referred the matter to a commission, and meanwhile suspended the pardon brief but ordered that all prosecutions must cease, for an act of Episcopal Inquisition had been organized, which continued its operations in spite of the papal commands. The commission reported in favor of the pardon brief, and of an inquisition under limitations, with appeals to Rome. Joao refused to accept this, and a lull in the negotiations occurred, during which the Nuncio de la Rovere entered into a contract with the new Christians, dated April 24, 1535, under which they promised to pay Paul III 30,000 ducats if he would prohibit the Inquisition. The Curia honestly endeavored to earn the money, and made several propositions to Joao, which he rejected. Then, on November 3rd, a bull was solemnly published in Rome, renewing the pardon brief, annulling all trials, releasing all prisoners, recalling all exiles, removing all disabilities, suspending all confiscations, prohibiting all future prosecutions for past offenses, and enforcing these provisions by excommunication. In this, Rome held that it had fulfilled its part of the bargain, but the new Christians thought otherwise. They declined to pay the full amount, and Della Rovere was not able, at least so he said, to remit more than 5,000 ducats. This parsimony came at an unfortunate moment. Charles V was in Rome, radiant with the glory of his Tunisian conquest, and warmly supporting the demands of his brother-in-law. The result of this was seen in a brief of May 23, 1536, which constituted an inquisition on the Spanish model, except that for three years the forms of secular law were to be observed, and for ten years confiscations were to pass to the heirs of the convicts. Diago de Silva was to be inquisitor-general, with the right of the king to appoint an associate. Diago was solemnly invested with his office October 5th, and the brief was published on the 22nd. This probably taught the new Christians a lesson on the subject of ill-timed economy, for a brief of January 9, 1537, addressed to Girolamo Reconidi Capodoferro, a new nuncio appointed for Portugal, gave him complete appellate power, even to evoking cases on trial and deciding them, while a supplementary brief of February 7th authorized him to suspend the Inquisition. His instructions also required him to labor vigorously for the repeal of the law prohibiting expatriation, and this was emphasized by a brief of August 31st threatening excommunication and suspension for any interference with those leaving the kingdom to carry their grievances and appeals to Rome. These appeals were a source of large profit to the Curia, which sold at round prices absolutions and exemptions to all applications. The tribunals threw all possible obstacles in the way of this traffic, and it was important to Rome to keep open the course of the Golden Stream.
At the moment, it was of less interest to the new Christians, for Cabotafero was as venal as his predecessor and exploited his large powers to the utmost, selling absolutions and pardons for what he could get. As Joao asserted, in a letter of August 4, 1539, his scandalous traffic had rendered the Judaizers so sure of impunity that they sinned with audacity. While demanding his recall, the king sought to curb him by appointing his brother, Dom Henrique, a young man of 27, to the vacant post of additional inquisitor-general. Henrique was archbishop of Braga, a post which he resigned in favor of Diago da Silva, who retired from the inquisitor-generalship, and Henrique remained, until his death in 1580, at the head of the Inquisition. At the moment, the plan was one of little avail, as Capitofero treated him with imperious arrogance, and even called in question his powers owing to defect in age, and Paul III refused to confirm him. Paul yielded in so far to Joao's urgency as to promise that Capitofero should leave Portugal on November 1st. At the same time, as the three years were about to expire during which the Inquisition was restricted to secular procedure, he listened to the supplications of the new Christians and in the bull Pastoris Eterni. October 12, 1539, he modified in many ways the inquisitorial process so as to limit its powers of injustice and to provide ample opportunity of appeals to Rome. A leading clause was that witnesses' names were only to be suppressed when grave dangers to them were to be apprehended. Through the treachery of a courier employed by the new Christians, this bull did not reach Lisbon until December 1st. Capitofero delayed his departure until December 15th and then left Lisbon without publishing it, because, as Mascarenhas, the Portuguese ambassador, reported, the new Christians refused to pay the extortionate price demanded for it. Mascarenhas intimates that the Pope was privy to this, which is not unlikely, for Capitofero was received with all favor. He and Della Rovere were placed in charge of the affairs of the Portuguese Inquisition. He was soon afterwards promoted to the great office of datary, and eventually reached the cardinalate. His nunciature had not proved as profitable as he had expected, for he lost 15,000 cruzados at sea and brought with him to Rome only as much more. On his arrival in Portugal, he had demanded of the new Christians 2,000 cruzados to start with, and was regularly paid by them 1,800 per annum during his stay, and this in addition to his pardon traffic. There was nothing unusual in this. In 1554, Julius III, in a moment of wrathful candor, told the Portuguese ambassador that nuncios were sent there to enrich themselves as a reward for previous services. With the return of Capitofero, after a little diplomatic sparring, Paul III dropped the whole question for nearly two years. Zhao was quite content. The three years' limitation to secular procedure had expired. The bull Pastori Attorney had not been published. The Inquisition had full swing, and its activity began to rival that of Spain. Its first auto de fe was celebrated in Lisbon, September 20, 1540, with 23 penitents and no relaxations, and was speedily followed by others. It was not until December 2, 1541, that Cristóvão de Sousa, then ambassador, refers to the new Christians who, he says, were earnestly at work to have another nuncio sent, and he had had a thousand discussions over it with the Pope, whose intention was fixed, because so many were burnt and so many thousands more were in prison. The new Christians offered to pay eight or ten thousand cruzados to the Pope, and two hundred and fifty a month to the nuncio. 
At a subsequent audience, Paul said that the nuncio would have a salary of a hundred cruzados a month, to which the new Christians could add a hundred and fifty, thus raising him above the temptation of bribery, to which Salsa rejoined that this would convert him from their judge to their advocate. Then, on a later occasion, he read a remonstrance from the king so vigorous that the pope walked up and down the room, crossing himself and saying that it was the work of the devil. Salsa replied by dwelling on the misdeeds of preceding nuncios, and even offered to let the Inquisition be withdrawn if it would relieve the kingdom from the evil of a nuncio. Further discussion was abruptly terminated by an explosion. Miguel de Silva, Bishop of Viseu, and Minister of Joao, a man of high culture, had been ambassador at Rome in the time of Leo X, and had formed lasting friendships with the future Clement VII and Paul III. He had recently fallen into disfavor at court and was about to be arrested, when he fled and found refuge in Italy. Joao tried to entice him back with flattering letters, while employing, as Silva says, bravos to follow and assassinate him. Paul could wound the king in no more sensitive spot than by announcing, as he did on December 2, 1541, Silva's appointment as cardinal. Joao's rage was unbounded. He promptly deprived the new cardinal not only of his offices and temporalities, but of his citizenship, thus rendering him an outlaw, and, on January 24, 1542, a special courier carried to Sousa peremptory orders to leave Rome as soon as he could present his letters of recall. His report of the manner in which this abrupt sundering of relations was received indicates that it gave rise to fears that Portugal was about to withdraw from the Roman obedience. This deprived the new Christians of such aid as they had purchased in Rome, and left Henrique in peaceable possession of the Inquisitorship, which he improved by establishing six tribunals, Lisbon, Evora, Coimbra, Lamego, Porto, and Tomar, of which the first three remained permanent, and the others were subsequently discontinued as superfluous. On the other hand, Paul III persevered in his intention to inflict another nuncio on Portugal, and appointed to that post Luigi Lipimano, coadjutor bishop of Bergamo. An intercepted letter of Diago Fernandez, the Roman agent of the New Christians, May 18, 1542, shows the anxiety with which his coming was awaited, and throws light on their relations with the Curia. He is expecting the money with which to pay the thousand cruzados to the nuncio, who demands it at once, although his orders were not to pay it until Lipomano was outside the walls of Rome. Everyone is clamoring for money until he is near losing his senses. He has agreed to pay a hundred and forty cruzados apiece for the pardons of Pedro de Nornanja and Maria Tomas, which he sends, and asks for an immediate remittance. Then, on the 19th, he adds that he has that day been compelled to pay the thousand cruzados to the nuncio. He has raised the amount by giving security and, though he has disobeyed orders, he prays that the money be sent, as without it all their labor and expense would be wasted. A postscript on the 20th alludes to a general pardon which the Pope had agreed to grant at a future time. People, he says, are wasting their money in getting special letters. The Pope prefers that it should all be done in a general provision, to which all should contribute, and it is the most important of all things to accomplish. It would appear from the case of Antonio Fernandez of Coimbra that, when letters of exemption were obtained, the king promptly banished the recipients, who then procured fresh letters requiring the king to grant them safe conducts and permission to sell their property, real and personal. Jao wrote to Lipomano not to come, and he persisted in this against the entreaties of Charles V. 
Nevertheless, the nuncio set out, and we hear of him in Aragon in August, where he encountered the Portuguese treasurer sent to detain him. The latter was fully aware of the payment of the thousand ducats and of the monthly stipend, as to all of which the nuncio professed the most innocent ignorance, and he further stated that the intercepted letters showed that Cardinal Silva was to receive 250 crowns a month to act as protector of the Jews. Nevertheless, the treasurer was finally persuaded to write favorably to his master, and Libomano resumed his journey towards Valladolid. Joao refused to be placated. On learning that the nuncio had reached Castile, he wrote ordering him to advance no further until he should hear from the Pope, to whom, on September 18th, he addressed a vigorous letter, demanding that no nuncio should be sent to interfere with the Inquisition. He was not actuated, he said, by greed, for there was no confiscation, and indeed, from another source we have the assertion that the maintenance of the Inquisition was costing him ten or eleven thousand ducats a year. Libomano had assured the Portuguese treasurer that he did not come to interfere with the Inquisition, that his orders were only to see whether the inquisitors observed justice. If they did not, conscience would require the Pope to make the necessary provisions. His secret instructions, however, were of a very different tenor. He was told that he need not hesitate to act with energy, though observing external courtesy, for Portugal was fatally weakened and approaching ruin. The king was completely impoverished, oppressed with debt, at home and abroad, hated by his people, and wholly under the influence of the friars, while his relations with France and with the emperor were unfriendly. As for the infant Henrique, if he was not to be deprived of the inquisitor generalship, he must at least seek a dispensation for lack of age, ask absolution for the past, and ratify or annul all the preceding trials. As for the Inquisition, it would be a most holy thing to abolish it, and commit the jurisdiction to the bishops. The nuncio was furnished with faculties to do this, or to suspend it, and these he was to show openly, that it might be known that this was at his discretion. Meanwhile he could issue letters to all who asked for them on their making payment, and even if the piece was small the aggregate would be large, as there were fifty thousand of them. The declaratory bull of November 13, 1539, suppressed by Capitaferro, was to be published without consulting the king. It need not be affixed to the church doors, but copies could be given to all who asked, so that they could use it when on trial, and Henrique was to be notified that all procedures must conform to it. If he protested, he was to be told that such was the papal will, and he could write to the pope if he so chose. Libomano was finally told that pressure of all kinds would be brought to bear on him, but he must be firm and remind them that he had power to abolish the whole institution. Whatever we may think of Joao's blind fanaticism, we cannot wonder at his objection to admitting in his kingdom an emissary who came to set him at defiance and to upset all his most cherished plans. On the other hand, a letter in December, from the spokesman of the new Christians to their Roman agent, remitting to him two thousand cruzados, depicts their agonized anxiety for the coming of the nuncio. It will be their salvation, and his absence is their destruction. It is useless to spend money on briefs when there is no one to enforce them. They might well feel desperate, for the Inquisition was active and unsparing. At an auto held in Lisbon, October 14, 1542, there appeared a hundred culprits, of whom twenty were relaxed, and Joao de Melo, in reporting this to the king, complained that it left the prison still crowded with those on trial. Nor was this all, for Herculano gives a terrible picture, full of revolting details, of the atrocities perpetrated everywhere, such as we have seen set forth in the memorials of Yerena and Yane.
End of section 30. Recording by Robert Sherman Jr., Washington, D.C., www.nyckidd.com.